Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 69. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. In light of the recent deaths of 49 people at Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando known to be a center for queer and Latin culture in Orlando, our focus for this week's podcast is the role of gay bars in creating community and culture and their significance in queer urbanism. We wanted to use this time to encourage constructive discussion of why recognizing and preserving these third spaces is so important not just for the queer community, but for creating diverse, welcoming urban spaces at large. So this week, we're joined by two guests, Susan Surface, a queer designer, curator, and organizer, and program director at Design and Public in Seattle, and James Rojas, an urban planner trained at MIT and specializing in cultural landscapes, who has written extensively about Latino urbanism. So James and Susan, thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast today. Before we kind of delve into the group discussion, I was hoping both of you could give just a little bit of a background to explain kind of the work that you do in architecture and urbanism and how it relates to these discussions that we're going to have around queer urbanism and Latinx urbanism. Let's start with you, James. Okay. Yes, I'm a city planner. I went to school 25 years ago and I've been doing planning work all over the country. And uh, the whole idea is how do people find value in place and how do we create values in places? And you know, that's one of the elements that are really important to me in my work is getting people to really tell their stories about why the Occupy spaces and why place has value. Because I think a lot of planners look at cities as problems to solve, but not everybody is a problem solver, but everybody, everybody does have value in a place. And I think that's kind of the one leading parts of the work that I'm looking at is kind of how do you get people to tap into their values to understand why they should be involved in this bigger discourse of city planning or urbanism. And uh, so that's the work I do right now is a lot of community engagement work all over the country on this topic. A lot of immigrants and refugees and just people in general, I wouldn't even think twice about the word urban planning. <laughs> and you do that mostly through workshops? Yeah, workshops, yes. Mm-hmm. Today I just uh, was training the LA County Planning Department and using my method. I, I use found objects. I use uh, hair rollers and popsicle sticks and uh, pop pipe cleaners to get people thinking and talking about their favorite spaces because people have an easier time building it through the visual and spatial landscapes than actually looking at a map and talking about it. The maps are too abstract. And you've also written about, most recently for KCET, about gay urbanism in Los Angeles in particular? Uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was uh, researching that because I was, I, was, I was talking about, I was research writing about Latino urbanism and trying to figure out where, where it all started from. You know, how do you pinpoint these movements and where do you start from? And a lot of it happened in the civil rights movement back in the late 60s uh, when people were just kind of claiming for their identity. And how do we claim for a spatial identity? You know, for Latino, there was murals, there was, you know, it was art in the street. It was all very, very, very focused. And for the gays, it was, it was a way to make, you know, the way to really say, how, how do you codify this culture that was always been in the back rooms of, you know, movie theaters in downtown or parks or dark places. Now you had a public face in the city. And what, but what does that look like? You know, how do you build your public face? You know, for Latinos, those building, you know, murals of Aztec Indians and telling the story. For gay people, it was looking at, looking at, uh, I looked at one place in particular, the French Market, which is built after this New Orleans-themed place. You know, this guy wanted this, this guy wanted to make a little gay community, but he used this New Orleans theme as a way to kind of physically structure it. So they had a lot of wrought iron, a lot of different uh, New Orleans kind of uh, ideas. A lot of the gay clubs back in the, you know, in the mid-70s in L.A. would have names like Cabaret, the New York, New York, all very much based on these kind of places in the kind of kind of gay, you know, uh, ideas about, you know, these areas that were kind of what they kind of aspired to be. So it was kind of looking for the identity in the built environment. And, you know, since L.A. has such a 
kind of a very moldable built environment that needed to build these kind of structures. I think the I think the French market had the first outdoor seating in LA. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. All right, uh, Susan, what about you? So um, I am currently working as the director of the Seattle Design Festival and uh, as program director at Design in Public. I also am an independent curator and have a gallery called the Alice, which is an artist-run space here in Seattle. And I'm trained as an architect. I currently do that somewhat on a freelance basis, but mainly doing sort of public programming, curatorial work, and dissemination of architectural and urban thought through civic engagement. And specifically, and perhaps in the last week, through that work and through your own thoughts, how have you been thinking differently about the scenario of or the ideas of queer urbanism in, in any imagination of that word? Well, I don't know if I've been thinking of it differently so much as going back and really relying on the networks and people that I have built up around me over time. I think that you know may be best how I relate to it. And it's funny actually to think of of a queer urbanism because for me, my network is so dispersed, but uh, yet we do feel very close. And so the idea of it being a type of urbanism maybe hasn't rung quite so close to me. I think that's something that a lot of people are kind of having, I wouldn't say necessarily struggling, but there's a, a different, a, trying to understand how this kind of relates to the overall national conversation around a tragedy like the death of 49 people at, at this club in Orlando. And part of us wanting to even talk about this on the Arconnect Sessions podcast has to do with not just the fact that it's this national tragedy, but that it's this, it happened in a space that has typically been one targeted by certain people and, and being for a community that has traditionally been the subject of discrimination and how in that social context and cultural context, how to create spaces, aka third spaces in the urbanist sense for these people to enjoy and for everyone to feel safe in them without referring to necessarily rhetorics of the so-called safe space. And these kind of discussions we were trying to have on the site in the forum to a varying degree of success, I'd say not super successful, but we wanted to bring it to the podcast to kind of continue the conversation and just see how if these ideas around queer urbanism and the access of any type of queer identity to a thriving city structure could be perhaps compromised or changed by an event like Orlando. So in no, in no way were we hoping to kind of solve anything with this conversation, but just kind of ha to have a, a constructive discussion about what's going on. And one thing that I found, and I'd like to hear if anyone else had heard this recently in the conversations happening after Orlando, was that many people were saying, of course, this brings up a new need for a safe space as a very specific, like technical, like literally a safe space where people don't have to worry about getting shot for gathering to just have fun. And then people took that to mean, oh, that means we need a safe space for a particular subset of people. And then a classic counter argument to that is like, well, it should be for everyone, it should be safe for everyone. And that the need for a safe space, so-called for the gay community has been kind of diluted or the need for it is no longer strong because of these advancements in civil rights and um, legal access for the gay community. But so how do you guys feel about this idea that, oh, since civil rights have advanced in certain ways, that we no longer need these so-called safer, accessible or thriving gay communities in cities? Well, I was going to say that I don't think I've ever felt like I had safe space or let alone that I was entitled to it. Part of it is a sort of philosophical idea that we're on a cataclysm of earth and things are going to happen. So how can you possibly control that? Another part of it is the lived experience of the type of body and the type of presentation that I have. 
rarely go a day without some form of harassment or threat. So just the concept of there being such a thing as a safe space hasn't ever really quite existed in my mind. Uh, I don't feel safe in the workplace or on the street. That said, of course, you know, one goes about one's life to varying degrees of comfort and joy. It's not like I'm freaking out all the time, but you know, the, there's always that to contend with for a lot of folks in the community. One thing that has, uh, really been a point of concern during this is the concept of people who link safe space with the concept of increasing police presence or increasing military presence rather than trying to come up with other strategies. Um, certainly in a lot of queer communities that I'm involved with, we don't feel any safer when there are additional police or arms, et cetera, available. So, um, you know, when we hear things about, you know, increasing the police presence of the gay pride parade to protect people who are marching that actually sets off a lot of red flags too. So this has stirred up a, an ongoing conversation that a lot of um, queers have been dialoguing about over the past, I don't know how many years about, you know, how do we create safer spaces? How do we take care of each other, et cetera? What are some of the ideas that have come up as uh, a means to create a, uh, a safe space for the queer community? Aside from policing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, an effective way outside of uh, traditional security. Well, I think it's kind of a bigger kind of issue about sexuality and kind of the role of middle class suburbia. Because I think, you know, having grown up in L.A. as a gay man in the 70s and 80s, we had all these like gay spaces that were kind of really marginal. But that's where people we went to, right, because that was their space. And then you see, you know, modern family with a gay couple, you know, on TV and you think, well, it's all solved. It's all going to be living in the suburbs, all live happy ever after and, you know, get married and have kids. And it's it. But then this, this thing in Orlando happens, Orlando happens, and you realize, hey, it's not all gone. It's still there. You know, homophobia is still there. And I think, you know, this, the Internet doesn't really make it go away. But I just think that this, but I think what we need is kind of, we need is, is, is still, cities are still very much about a physical presence. And how do we, as a community, understand our physical presence? And how do we now make that physical presence known? in the urban, urban planning world. So maybe these gay spaces aren't these really marginal alleyways or the, the club at the end of town or, you know, or at the end of the parking lot or, you know, but they're kind of mainstream places that, like, everybody, like every other club in the U.S. has, you know, uh, has, 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 you know, has a presence, you know, on, on Main Street, you know. So it's, you know, if this, you know, if they would have had a shooting in Times Square, New York, would it have taken three hours to get there? Would it have, would it have been that tragic? You know, but, you know, but I think looking at the zoning, looking at where gay clubs are usually happening, that usually happening at these fringe neighborhoods that people just don't really get the services that you get, you get at the at a mainstream, you know, establishment for entertainment. So it's looking at, you know, what the, you know, look at these land use patterns and kind of figuring out where these things are happening and how do they just become part of the narrative about the, the city in general. So we start looking at not just like one size fits all, but kind of how do you start to look at planning in a more comprehensive way for everybody. Yeah, they're looking at their values and needs. So, James, this is uh, Ken. So, I read your piece for uh, KCET, and something that you said kind of stuck out for me. The when you talk about um, when the gay community in the seventies uh, kind of operated within the margins of society, and I would suspect that there was safety in operating in the margins. But now that there's greater acceptance of of the LGBTQ community in general in America. And there's now this bumping up of a community that didn't accept for a long time. And and one of the things I'm trying to understand is the difference between accommodation, assimilation, and acculturation. It seems like the the heterosexual community really wants gays to assimilate. And we're, I think, uh, in, they're not very accepting of 
accommodating so that, you know, now there's this, now there's this bumping up now that gay community is becoming more accepted, more mainstream. Now there's, now you're bumping up against, not in the margins anymore. Now you're operating on the, the, the white privileged, masculine, heterosexual turf. How do you deal with that situation in urban planning? Well, I think that's the big issue. I think what's happening now is that, for instance, like in places like Silver Lake or West Hollywood, all these, all these gay clubs now are all, are all hipster clubs. And, you know, gays don't have these spaces anymore. So maybe they get, again, pushed out to other the fringes of the city because these spaces are become kind of, you know, heterosexual. And, you know, and uh, but gays still need that kind of space to communicate with each other in certain ways. And there's just certain, you know, certain values, certain kind of a body presence that, you know, that gay people have versus, you know, versus how, you know, straight people have. And, you know, the dynamics is kind of, you know, going, you know, happening. And how do we, so, so people are still going to want their own spaces in a sense to really understand that kind of body language. And how, but how do we kind of understand these spaces and create these spaces? And it's like not just one size fits all. And, uh, you know, and, but, but yeah, but I think looking at how to, uh, you know, articulate what, what that means and how do we maintain these kind of values. You know, I was looking at like, you know, places like San Francisco and the Castro Street, and that maintains its gayness compared to West Hollywood, you know, and where it's just kind of now very kind of gentrified and is it still gay or not gay, but, you know, but, or Silver Lake, you know, it's kind of lost all its gayness there. So it's just, so, so what, so what do we need to do and how do we kind of protect these kind of communities to understand, you know, these, these people, these communities have value to us. And no matter how much assimilation we are in, in you know, in, in mainstream culture or in social media, we still need that kind of physical space, you know, to interact with each other with, you know, and as a, as a culture. Some of my thinking along these lines has been to question, like, what is the meaning of gay space or what is queer space? I mean, you have this sort of old school definition of it where it's like a place where gay or queer people hang out. It's literally the closet or it is the club or it's people's homes or things like that. But I think as the evolution of what gayness, queerness, gender, identity, et cetera, continues to be learned and relearned and, and reformed as time goes on. I don't know if I can boil it entirely down to sexual orientation for that matter. You know, like you can be as normative as the day is long and be a homosexual, or you can be, you know, not and have preferences for whoever you are into. And so I do see a bit of a decoupling of total sexual orientation or or anything like that with this concept of what the space would be. And I've started to think a lot more about the sense of being queer for me as understanding myself or my identity as like someone who does not take things for granted and someone who doesn't take things at face value might be an efficient way of putting it, you know, not assuming that someone's gender is what we've historically been raised to think that it is based on what they look like or not assuming that someone's sexual preference is one thing or another based on any other known quantity other than being directly informed by that person. And so then when you go into a space, how could you possibly know that about who else was there? Based, um, unless you really did know. Yeah, well, I think what's happened in L.A., we have, you know, as most gay spaces, that, for instance, the gay club, you know, back in the early 70s, mid-70s, there was a need for gays to have a space to, to meet besides the bathroom. So you had all these gay clubs bringing up over West Hollywood and Silver Lake. These gay clubs needed music. You know, what are you going to do with these clubs now? You know, they're too, they were too small, too, too low rent to have a live music. So they started importing, they started creating these, these you know, Donna Summers, you know, 15, 15 minute song, soundtracks. 
and the whole and the whole disco DJ kind of emerged from all these gay clubs because now they needed music to go at the club and they needed a way to communicate with each other. You know, because men probably don't talk a lot, but they probably could dance. You know, it could be more physical. So this whole kind of phenomena kind of occurred, you know, in these clubs and kind of produces kind of like DJ culture that we take for granted. And it was happening in LA that this DJ culture moved over to the to the east side to Latinos. Because, you know, Latino gay guys would go there, then the, then the girls would follow, and the straight guys would follow. The straight guys would go there and clap and hear the music and say, what, this in East L.A.? They bring back this whole gay culture of music back to the East Side, and that produces this whole kind of DJ culture on the East Side. It really kind of expands this whole music, you know, you know, you know, you know presence. And I think it's just really how this kind of whole start, it started with this whole kind of body politic. You know, people, men needed a place to communicate, and it was music, but they, they had to get cheap music, which was records, and it just... Start from there. So I think we have to really understand, you know, sometimes spaces and identities and cultures. We create things, you know, you know, just out of these activities. And how do we kind of start to think about them in this kind of creative way? I think it's fascinating that you, because we see so many of the origins of these so-called gay spaces out of actual necessity, out of either persecution or ghettoization through whether it's um, white flight in LA, allowing these cheap rents for people to come in and start these kind of clubs, or just the fact that you could not be an openly gay person and, pra- and practice your day-to-day lifestyle in the way that you wanted to without being persecuted. Well, and But that, Susan, that reminds me of what you were saying of how it's frustrating to then be limited on interpreting the supposed kind of lineage of queer urbanism as solely about sexuality or solely about lifestyle based on sexual preferences. And so the idea that you would have to relate queer urbanism solely to the sexual identity of a person is limiting inherently. Yeah, I was just about to say like the the phrase gay lifestyle really kind of gets under my skin. I've never quite known what that was. <laughs> like, which gay lifestyle? Is it the lesbian couple with five children? Is it, you know, me as a single person running around? I mean, it's it's very mysterious. I've always wondered. What I what I think of and when I use that a term like that is when I think of places like the Castro in San Francisco, where these neighborhoods that have been heavily commodified to appeal to hopefully everyone, but at the same time, based on this kind of cultural heritage of being a place of of uh, gay heritage in a way. And that one of those being a lifestyle that you can sell. So you have the gay lifestyle, whether that is something that is actually so like appealing. the Chinatown lifestyle. <laughs> exactly. It, which, it could be the hipster lifestyle, right? It could be anything, but it's something that is packaged in this consumer urbanist kind of model that people can either like sell or quickly understand. Yeah, but back in 1970, people from all the country would go to San Francisco to be gay, have a gay life, to have a gay life. And that's where they went. I mean, you just went there to that's what you had to do, you know, so you couldn't do it in, in the Midwest, you had to do it there. So so it's a very different driver. It was like people were seeking like-minded people to kind of be themselves, kind of birds of feather flocking together and would do a choose these inner cities that nobody else wanted, you know, in West Hollywood or, you know, parts of New York City. So, but it was a way for them to really kind of say, we're, we want to be ourselves now. We want to, we want to, we want to claim our identity. We need, we need to have a physical space to claim our identity. We're here. We're queer. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, but you need to have the physical presence to say, this is who we are. We're here and deal with it. You know, if we, if we, if we didn't have that, we would never be where we are today. So James, one of the things that kind of uh, Amelia touched on a little bit is um, in your piece, you talked about white flight and that created um, an opportunity for gay and lesbian community to kind of co-opt and take um, you know, there was cheap land, there was tolerant zoning, and even lenient codes. However, the, the reverse is happening. The cities are now um, much more expensive. The codes are much more uh, onerous, and zoning is much more restrictive. Whereas 
the the suburbs are majority uh, most of the the I think the numbers have shifted where more poor people live in suburbs now than they do in the cities and the, the codes are typically much more lenient and zoning is typically much more less restrictive and you know one of the things living in uh, Minneapolis which there was to some measure of a great fanfare here they were in one of the first ring suburbs they celebrated in the paper two weeks ago the city golden uh, golden valley it's a suburb of minneapolis i think it's where um general mills is headquartered celebrated their first gay pride parade can you see a re- almost almost by necessity a reverse trend happening where you know the, the community will start to shift out you know as gay marriage has become more acceptable and as is a state law now you know and it's federal i mean it's been backed it's been codified by the supreme court can you see more affluent gay and lesbian families starting to shift their families more towards the suburbs and and kind of pushing out in that direction yeah, I think that's happening. You see a lot of that happening in L.A., like places like Whittier, California. Probably has a lot of gay people living there because it's affordable, you know, and it's uh, or and you'll see a lot of this kind of you know, coupling up in the different kind of suburban in these suburban uh, neighborhoods because it's more acceptable and plus it's affordable and people now have are getting married and have children and want to have these kind of same kind of values. So I think this will probably be a bigger trend, you know, you know, in one sense. But again, you know, how do you keep that identity of the community as one coherent, coherent place? So one thing that I'd like to get everyone's opinion on and kind of a parallel uh, discussion that I've seen coming or arising from the discussions after the Orlando shooting around the utility and the significance of queer urbanist spaces is a comparison to gentrification as an overall rhetoric. The idea that out of necessity, often out of some type of structural persecution, a group finds a place to develop a cultural identity and urbanize in a way. And that space is mostly out of necessity because they're in some way pushed there or forced there out of affordability and have to make make things work there. And then later on, that after that cultural development happens and the urbanization kind of slowly kicks in, for whatever other reason, that space becomes appealing to another group of people that then try to move in and perhaps supplant that community from that original space. And so there's this, to me, there seems to be kind of a parallel discussion happening around the so-called pinkwashing or opening up of gay spaces for people who are critical of the of the idea that the, these spaces are necessary as spaces of acceptance and, and um, inclusivity. That the idea being oh, they should be for everyone from the get-go, so I should have the right to move in there just like everyone else, the kind of the same argumentation around gentrification. So I was wondering if anyone else has like a, a, any relationship to that kind of similarity or sees kind of parallels between those two discussions. Yeah, I've been thinking about that lately because I've been thinking about, you know, L.A. had these really great ethnic neighborhoods like Sangalore Valley and Asians, these Stanley with Latinos and these different enclaves. And I was just thinking how for these immigrant and refugees, these spaces are more important to them as they are to just the average hipster in L.A. They can choose to live anywhere because, you know, I can live in Mar Vista. I work downtown. I work in tech. So I don't really need, I don't really need, I don't, I don't really need a space. Where an immigrant coming from Mexico or China says, I need to be in East L.A. or I need to be in San Diego Valley because that's where I can find my friends, my business, my survival. So there's a different value placed on space. It's not all equal. Like we might assume it's all equal. I can move from Silver Lake to that water to Mar Vista because, you know, I could just do that. But I think for immigrants, they just get really shuffled and get really, get really funneled to these really, really specific places that they, they need to survive. They need to thrive and survive in these spaces. Just how people gave needed San Francisco to thrive and survive in the 70s and 80s. So it's a really different kind of value system. You know, how do you look at it as being kind of an overall versus kind of like a survival necessity? 
I was thinking about uh, there's an artist here in Seattle named John Christoshalo who has made some posters that say, we came here to get away from you. And it has to do, uh, I guess I'll speak specifically about the neighborhood where those have been put up, which is called Capitol Hill. And it's it was the gayborhood for many, many years, a sort of Castro Jr. of Seattle. And what happened is not only did it gentrify and, and push people out economically, but the wave of people who have come in has actually been actively harassing, targeting, and violently attacking queer people in the neighborhood. You know, this used to be the place where you'd see a guy walking his lover in a leather leash down the street on a Tuesday morning with coffee in their hand, and it was fine, or at least not that big of a deal. And now it's a place where I actually had a faggot screamed at me the other day, and that was you know, it hasn't happened in a while, but it's changing. It's not just the sort of wave of people who price out economically, but there's actively aggressive homophobic people coming in. And so that's really been a source of a lot of anxiety here. And the sort of sentiment of we came here to get away from you was was exactly this thing that we've talked about was, you know, it's a, a survival skill or strategy that people use or technology of power, you might call it, where you know, in terms of talking about how people keep each other safe, um, one way is to sort of build up affinity groups and enclaves and to concentrate, be it in the Castro or on rural land somewhere that nobody knows about or in a certain neighborhood of pocket of the city. So I'm not really sure where else I'm going with that. I'll just leave it at that because I thought of nothing else to say. No, I'm glad you brought it to a specific, a sp- very specific instance because of th- it's impossible to avoid as, as we've seen from the forum discussion that I somewhat naively posed to our next forum, wanting to kind of kickstart this discussion around queer space, that the idea that as soon as you open up a space to so-called like the, the free market liberties and whatever that you feel are your right to do based on your uh, economic abilities, that that should allow you the right to do that. And James has referenced that that's simply a different way of valuing the space that is being inherited or being moved into than than maybe it is for the people who have already lived there. And how this brings up this inherent friction between those two communities for how the space should be used. I'm wondering then how can we bring this conversation specifically to Pulse and specifically to a nightclub in Orlando that in this particular night that the killings of these 49 people happened was a Latino night. It was, I believe they were like playing reggaeton when this particular thing happened. So how can we have the creation of a a space like a nightclub, which is of course not going to explicitly not allow anyone in it, but it should be a place for everyone that can still have this identity around Latinx and queer um, accessibility and inclusivity while still being in the middle of a very much not gay oriented community and be in a space that is going to necessarily be subject to the same changes that could happen in a place like Seattle. Might be a little bit of a too obtuse question. <laughs> Do I talk about gentrification of the area or just kind of just specifically space? like a place like a gay nightclub like Pulse? Like what are the ways in which as urbanists and as designers and architects a space like that can be actively kind of enhanced and shown as a place of inclusivity while also being a place of queer urbanism. Maybe there's no answer to that, but that's something that we were trying to kind of like struggle with and figure out how these spaces can be both explicitly identified as that while still being inclusive and not get enmeshed in these arguments of by being specifically identified as something that it means it's exclusive to that something. The people at Pulse, I read several interviews saying it was a place where everyone came. I think there's a few reasons for that. One of it is probably that it was. I think communities are a lot more open and complicated than we normally take into account. You know, I've, I don't 
tend to think there is such a thing as, you know, the Latino community and the gay community, because obviously there are gay Latinos. It's like, how do you pick who's who? You know, there was all these stories about the person who was dancing in the club with his mother who came just to support her her child and his social space. And also when you get into communities of color, I think that the intergenerational aspect and the family aspect is a lot more common. Like here in Seattle, when I go to a club with folks of color, it's like everybody's there, grandma's there and, you know, uncle's there and you meet auntie. And then if we go to a rock show at, at that kind of bar, it's pretty much, you know, all people who are there either as couples and they're all roughly between like 18 and 40 something and you know, granny's not there probably so and and part of it also just has to do with the way that people are treated again i'm not sure how much of that is an architectural thing versus more of a, a social protocol but it does have to do with what people will and will not put up with you know do you go to a, a bar and the bartender the security dismiss you if you have a complaint about your safety or do you go to a bar when they immediately have your back you know do you go to a bar and you know it if you go in there with whatever shade you happen to be and it's fine. You aren't treated like you're the threat or a problem immediately because of that. It's different than when you go to a different space and someone immediately asks to see your ID and pats you down for a weapon and tells you not to wear your pants a certain way. So I think that it's sort of gestures and protocols actually have a lot to do with what makes the space welcoming to anyone, certainly Space that's queer specific. There's a lot of bars here that do have murals outside that say transphobia, homophobia, racism, classism, bigotry, etc. will not be tolerated and we will kick your ass out if you <laughs> threaten our patrons, which certainly is not tolerant of the asshole. But, you know, there is a limit <laughs> to that. But it, it is kind of trying to cultivate a certain type of space. Like, why do you cover your head when you go into a religious space? Um, right. Sometimes that's what you do. If you go in there, you should expect to behave a certain way. Right. And I wonder, you know, it, it, there has to be this, this, um, there has to be some growing of our culture where they stop, where we stop insisting that people assimilate and become like everybody else. I mean, we have to respect each other for our differences and allow people to gather in whatever ways they want. I mean, there's been this thing I've been puzzling over for the past, you know, week and a half about why is this incident any different than the one that happened in Charleston? And despite, you know, my every time I went down a path, it, you know, there wasn't really any difference. Both spaces had an expectation of safety because they were they were with people, like-minded people, and they had an expectation. Nobody expected to go to church that day and get shot, and nobody expected to go to this club and get shot. And, you know, I think part of it is just recognizing that it's okay that everyone is not the same and is, you know, and not forced down everybody's throat this idea that we have to, you know, just because it's somehow a law has been passed and people are, are freer to, pra to be who they are. It doesn't mean that the world's going to change overnight. I had this tremendous fear after the courts affirmed gay marriage that something that there was going to be this guard being let down that because you can see it happening, you know, the things that were happening when I was when I was born in 1968 are happening today and are happening to the same group of people. So where is, you know, after Jim Crow is gone and after civil rights amendments have been passed, there really hasn't been much change in almost 50 years. So I just can't, I can't, um, I just can't fathom the idea that the only way we get to this is by Disneyfication of, of gay culture. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And it's just a, it's a sad reality that people in this country are just not going to get over their own hatred and just going to have to attack people they feel like they need to. Well, I mean, an interesting point too, is that the shooter at 
Pulse has been since identified as someone who probably was gay himself. So, I mean, which leads which leads me to, you know, see this more as a sociological problem than a than a necessarily a personal homophobic issue because of I mean, the way that this guy was brought up in his family is his father was also very extremely homophobic. How many millions of homophobic people have there been in the world who haven't done this, though? <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. It's I mean, it's it's I mean, is as uh, open minded as the world gets. There's always going to be people that have, you know, severe mental illness that are going to do things like this. And access to weapons that can slaughter people en masse yeah. mm-hmm. with one person doing that which I think is a unique circumstance that has arisen since the 1980s specifically. I mean, if you look at it, the amount of, of death by that means has clearly gone up. Yeah. I also think about the, all the other scenarios that we can kind of look to of other specific spaces um, that have been targets of hate against the gay community in any form and how that those events have either been taken as opportunities to engage a larger discussion or uh, start ideas of preservation and how we should figure out how to bring these spaces to a general consciousness and kind of, for better or for worse, kind of codify their importance and significance for a general population. And we had something of a historic moment in that in the last year of President Obama making a national landmark of the Stonewall Inn and as a specific place in gay history. And of course, the idea is not to make this, here's an important place in gay history, but an important place in American history and in, 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 in history just in general, but for a specific thing that has to do with that community. And what I thought was particularly lovely is after, of course, after the shooting, I um, can't remember exactly which publication it was, but speaking to the owner of the club about her plans for what would happen after this event. And of course, her, or not of course, but her response was simply that it has to keep going. That the entire point of starting an organization like this and a place like this was after she lost her brother to AIDS, how to have a place for release and enjoyment and community in the face of something otherwise so horrible. And so it was kind of in her mission to continue having something like this and not have it become compromised by such a tragedy. But it does, I think, bring up interesting issues of preservation and simply like evolution of how you decide to keep something going after a a moment of tragedy. You know, just one, I want to say one last thing before I shut the fuck up, (laughs) because I'm I'm painfully aware of my presence in the world and and I, I dwell on it constantly. But I read the piece over the weekend, see us on Archonnect, and you see it in the discussion, questioning the the need for spaces uh, like this. And I think there was a piece in the Times over the weekend where how many numbers of the families who lost uh, children in Pulse didn't know their son or daughter was gay, who denied it, who still... And so there's anyone who thinks that there isn't a real need for a space for kids that are are coming out or trying to find places of, of to find identity and find sense of self. I mean, it's just patently obvious that to many of those kids, unfortunately, that places where they died, it was a lifeline. And unfortunately, it, it you know, it'll it'll continue to be needed in this country for, you know, we have a we have a lot of land here. And there's, you know, all the gay kids in this country aren't situated around major population centers. And it's just to, to expect that, you know, a kid who whose uh, parents are uh, or barely scraping by in some dingy suburb in the middle of Minnesota is somehow going to have enough money to get to Minneapolis, uh, where, the, where it's a quite friendly community here running, and that they're going to be able to get here is just is patently absurd. And spaces like this, I think, are necessary. It's not just it's not just about the gay club youth centers. I mean, there's so many kids in this community in Minneapolis. They talk about it all the time. All the kids that are being kicked out of their homes and have no place to live. The homeless population is 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 riddled with gay kids. Who 
who, who have no place. So safe space, it doesn't have to just be a club. It doesn't have to be a place where people drink. It could just be a, a place where kids get to be kids. And, you know, to, it, we need those places. So it was, um, I think people on the website are awfully naive when they say stupid shit like that, that we don't need those spaces, that people should just be wherever they want to be. And we should, you know, that if you fucking grew up on a, another planet or were born literally the day before this event happened, maybe you get to ask those questions. But if you're a sentient adult, I mean, you don't get to ask those questions. I think in the age of all this technology and all this like cyber world, I think people think that everything's great now, but I think it's the cities are really about physical experiences and it's always going to be that way for us. So we really need to think about how do you make physical, physically better places to live and inhabit and, and kind of create these kind of tolerant areas for everybody to kind of prosper in, in cities that work for everybody and not just for certain group of people. And, you know, we, we just do better social planning, you know, as far as, you know, uh, urban planning goes for, uh, you know, public spaces and public realm and identity and all the different kind of layers that get. And if I can jump in, there's also the, the sort of transformative model, which is actually, I guess maybe we could call it trickle up benefit, where the idea is that you center the people who are the most vulnerable and you make them the priority with the concept that, you know, if you can take care of that first thing, instead of actually trying to take care of everybody, like let's take care of the people who are the most affected, like trans women of color who experience the greatest levels of poverty and violence, et cetera, then, you know, the rest of it will sort of chain reaction follow suit. For example, we've we've learned that with things like universal design, where if you design for, you know, access for one particular group, it does end up actually benefiting a lot of other types of people in unexpected ways. So I, I, try, I tend to stay away from thinking about, you know, how can we benefit everybody? That's so vague. I mean, there isn't just a way to really functionally deal with that. Yeah. And I, I just think that in the world of planning, there hasn't really been a lot of conversation about LGBTQ you know, bases, you know, and how do we start thinking about these as communities and, and, and we plan for. Not just let them happen because they happen, but how do we start to codify their values in the built environment so they have, they can, they can kind of maintain their integrity over a long period of time. They're not just a fleeting moment, but to kind of part of the whole urban pattern of, Americans, of the American city. So hopefully we'll get to continue these conversations and keep evolving these ideas outside of any context of national or international tragedy. Does anyone have any final thoughts before we wrap up today's conversation? I, I would just like to point out that as we record this right now at 6.38 Eastern time in the United States on Wednesday, the uh, Democrats in the House are doing a staging a sit-in. And when we talk about space and public space and uh, actual physical space being important, I think if anything, that would be proof that controlling space is critical for all kinds of communities and to get all kinds of messages out. You know, I do think that a lot of the the world is, uh, communities are going more virtual. I certainly have very good, very close friends who I only know virtually, but ultimately physical space matters. And James, as you said in, in both your articles that I've read many of and love and what you just said a few minutes ago, this that the, these spaces can work for many different people uh, from all different kinds of backgrounds. This is part of what the American urban and, and civic landscape is about. I also just want to point to, to uh, and we'll put it in the show notes, our former guest on the podcast, Mitch McEwen, who writes a blog on architect called Another Architecture, wrote a great blog post a year and a half ago called I Can't Breathe Equals You Can't Dance. And it's a commentary on how New York City zoning laws specifically targeted spaces of, into, of racial integration during the jazz era. And, and it, it just thinking about the ways that that rules and laws and zoning codes can impact how we communicate and 
participate with each other. It's a great read and a great reminder that certain laws don't really have a place any, anymore in our society. And it would be good to be able to re- rework those laws in ways that will work better for more of us. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it's been wonderful talking to you all. Um, and that, that would be my last comment. It seems like more talk is really the part of what we need to create safer space, because it seems like safer space is just kind of a more open-minded society, ultimately. Asking for no more than human rights <laughs> shouldn't necessarily allow. But James and, and Susan, thank you both so much for joining us. And we hope we can continue this conversation with both of you and, and more as, uh, as days go on. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you. Well, that's it for our show. Thanks to everyone out there listening. And thanks to James Rojas and Susan Surface for joining us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arcconnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Talk to you next week.